We are um, carrying on our series uh, in not of and hello and this is uh, really to be honest with you this series is aimed at Christians. If you're a Christian in the room, this is uh, this is aimed at you. If you're not a Christian in the room, you are so very very welcome. Uh, we absolutely love having you with us and. But really, throughout this series, if you're here today, and obviously if you, you are here today, sorry, uh, here today, and if you're coming over the next couple of weeks, uh, you, you're really going to get an insight into what having a biblical worldview is. And a worldview is kind of uh, the way we make sense of the world, uh, is how we answer all the big questions of life, death, and everything in between. And, and whatever your worldview is, the whatever you, way you think of the world, you need to have an answer to all of those kind of questions about how we approach different things. And uh, the biblical, uh, being a Christian, is, is about having a relationship with Jesus, yes, of course, but it's also about being shaped by the Word of God. And the Bible tells us that we are to be in the world. You don't become a Christian and get kind of zoomed out to heaven straight away. We are in the world, but we are not of the world, which requires us to kind of think differently and act differently and, and live differently. And really requires us to be in the world, not of the world, requires us to live with wisdom. Um, as I kind of talked about last week, we need to be both sensible and sensitive to the culture within which we live and we've got to recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood the bible says people are not the enemy the enemy is the enemy our battle is against principalities and powers and so because people are not the enemy we are not to judge and condemn people but instead we are to live our lives shaped by the story of god not the story culture tells which means we're going to think and act and look very differently from the world around us on certain issues. And that's okay. Because if we're going to be shaped by the story of God, we're going to recognize that we are exiles who don't belong to this world. We are kind of, if you like, passing through this world. We belong to a different kingdom. And so we are to those who are to live by faith. Which means we don't see, the things, see things the way the world sees things. We look to the things unseen. We are people who live by grace. Which means that we recognize that we are not better than other people. God has saved us, not because of what we have done, but because of his radical grace and mercy. So we don't look down upon and judge others and think we're better than them. We are recipients of grace. And so we live for Jesus. We recognize we don't need the things that this world says we need in order to feel fulfilled and, and no joy. We found it all in Jesus and ultimately live for God's glory. Well, today we're looking at a, um, well, not potentially, a sensitive subject. This idea, this biblical teaching that life belongs to God. What we call the sanctity of life or the, the sacredness, if you like, of life, the preciousness of life. And having a biblical worldview means that believing that life, all of life, is precious and belongs to God. And it's all sacred and therefore we don't have a right to take it. And that's not the world we live in, is it? <laughs> we live in this, in this city where 149 people were murdered last year. It's up 50% since 2014. Since beginning of this year, 11 people already have been murdered in this city. Um, Greenwich is statistically, the one we're in the moment, borough in the moment, statistically safer than a whole bunch of other boroughs, and yet it's still number 11 on the arrests of those with knives list in the whole of London. We as a church have, uh, have partnered with an organization called Power the Fight, which is all about empowering communities to end youth violence. I met with the founder and CEO of that recently, and we'll talk more about that later in the year. But what I want to focus in on at the moment is actually at the moment in the UK, statistically, the most dangerous place to be 
is actually in the mother's womb. Over 200,000 abortions took place last year. And at the other end of the scale as well, the, the push increasingly for euthanasia and uh, an assisted suicide, the right to end life when you want it, on your terms, is further eroding what we call the sanctity of life, the sacredness of life, with all sorts of worrying consequences. This is, a, I'm well aware, a sensitive topic, but we need to address it. And I want to set it up by reinforcing the foundations that I talked about last week again, that when our lives are shaped by the story of God, they're shaped by the gospel. And the gospel reveals the staggering and the shocking, frankly, kindness of God towards sinners. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, but the very next one, John 3.17, Jesus says, I have come into the world not to condemn the world, rather to save the world from condemnation. And as I talked about last week, that's not really our reputation as Christians so often, is it? We have a reputation of being the smug morality police who condemn people for the way they live their lives. But that's not Jesus, and it shouldn't be us either. Now, let's just be clear. If you're visiting here today and beginning to know Christians, you, you, we are hypocrites. <laughs> I mean, probably ac more accurately, we are recovering hypocrites. We are learning to be more like Jesus. None of us are perfect. We get things wrong. Our, what we believe and what we say and how we act so often don't line up. But we are learning to be like Jesus. And frankly, this whole kind of thing to no longer being a, a hypocrite is actually a lifetime's journey. It will take until the very end when we meet Jesus, where one day we will be perfect. We're not perfect, but Jesus is. And it's him I want to kind of point to this morning. And so when we read scripture, we see Again and again, sinners come into the presence of Jesus and they don't feel judged. They feel loved by him. That's the staggering kindness of a holy God, that those who are not perfect can come into the presence of one who is and not feel judged but feel loved. See, sinners come to Jesus and they do feel the weight of their sin, but the love, they also feel the love of God to change and cleanse them of their sin and set them free of all of their guilt and set them free of all of their shame. They come as they are, but they don't stay the same. That's the message of the gospel. There's a very famous story in John chapter 8. It's a woman caught in adultery, and obviously a bloke has been involved, but she's the one who is caught and, and dragged before the crowd, and she's condemned. And they're like, she's broken the law, throw stones at her. And Jesus, in verse 7 says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, put their stone down. Verse 9 says, they went away, one by one. And in verse 10, Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are they? Just place yourself in that situation for a moment. Imagine the tears, the sorrow, the pain, the guilt, the shame, the, wow, the public humiliation of it all. And Jesus says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Just think of the radical kindness, the love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ. So many of us often believe the lie that Jesus is a bit disappointed with us. Like, I've just done this, and he's just a bit disappointed. He's not disappointed with you. See, one of the most powerful images, I could talk about this story all day, but one of the most powerful images of this story is that Jesus is not on the outside of her life passing comment. He's not standing there going, well, he's there with her in the dirt. They're all on the outside passing comment. He's there with her in the dirt. He's holding her face tenderly. He's wiping away her tears with love and grace and mercy. 
He's not on the outside. He's there. He enters into her story. He enters into her shame with her in the shame, with her in that moment. And he shows such kindness that leads to repentance. It leads from her turning away from her old life that leads to life and freedom and joy. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus enters into our mess, our filth, our shame, our guilt, our brokenness. He's not standing on the outside judging us for it. He enters in and then we repent and we turn away from our old way of living. We put our trust in him and it leads to life and freedom and joy. You know, we're talking about now, we're going to be talking in the next half an hour of the life, about life and being made in the image of God. And if we go to some of these places we're about to go to without the foundation and the framework of the gospel, there is massive potential for condemnation for those who have been personally affected by this topic or there's massive potential for ugly judgmentalism for some of us who have not. And if you begin to get into one of those things where you've stepped outside the framework of the gospel because with Jesus, he says, I have come to save you from condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're in Genesis uh, chapter 1, the very, very, very first page of the Bible, uh, of the whole story. And last week I said part of this series was to cause us to pause and stop and think, not just know what the Bible says, but understand why we think like we do and how the Bible shapes that. There's, either, there's only two influences in the world, the Word of God and the world in which we live. And they don't say the same thing. And the messages of the world are not neutral. They are contrary to the word of God. And so we need to be shaped by this. So part of the pausing and thinking today is why does life matter? Just ethically and philosophically for a moment, why does life matter? Like instinctively, we all think it does. We, we know that life matters, but why? Just why? For Christians, having a biblical worldview, it starts here. We believe it matters because of page one of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Starts with him, and he created. Flick to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Flick over to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I just want to talk about for a moment, well, two things really, the importance and then the implications of being made in the image of God. And the importance of being made in the image of God, this is not just, well, God created, therefore I believe in God, and yeah, okay. No, the importance of the image, being made in the image of God has far bigger implications than we think. This is foundational for Christians. This is not just because God, we believe in God, but this is now affects the way we live, the deep foundations for everything, because this is why life matters. This is what gives it meaning because God made it. Now, if you don't believe in God, why does life matter? Like just ethically, philosophically. Like it, and if you do believe in God, it's not just, well, yes, obviously I believe in God. You've got to enter into and understand how a mindset, a framework outside of the biblical one works. Why does life matter? You see, for all the progress of science and I haven't got time to go into addressing this, but the assumption that science and faith don't mix is, is a false one. Okay? They absolutely do. It's my 
father was. He's retired now, professor of microbiology and a man of faith. My brother is a biochemist by trade and then became a vicar. Like, and he didn't walk away and go, I just disbelieve everything I've ever learned and changed. No, 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 they're completely compatible. You can absolutely be a scientist and a Christian. But for all the progress of science, the how and the what, we understand so much more now of life, there's not really a scientific basis for saying that human beings have rights and dignity and value in pure science. Because if the world is a cosmic accident, then life is not really special. And thus, why is it a tragedy when the weak in the gene pool are dominated by the strong? That's just the outworking of nature. There was a, a British philosopher called Bertrand Russell who said this, we are the product of causes that had no provision of the end they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our minds are just the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. Just accidentally how they were placed together, it's just the consequence. There's just an accident. It is what it is. At the same time, if human life is merely chemical processes, then there is truly nothing that makes my material any different from any other material or any other animal. So again, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was a major intellectual in the 20th century, said, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance difference in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Just made, just a different collection. It just doesn't make any difference. And yet we kind of deep down know that's not true, right? We sort of don't really agree with that. When we, when we watch nature programs and the lions hunting an antelope, no one's calling 999. Like, we're not... There's something wrong here, ringing the police. That's not what it happens. Yet our TV shows are filled with 999, what's your emergency, that as soon as strong is dominating weak, we know that that's wrong. Like when we watch two lions fighting for the, for the pride and one of them kills the other and takes over the, the family and the territory, we just go, well, that's nature. Like you go home this afternoon and start fighting your next door neighbor for his family and his territory, <laughs> someone's ringing the police on you. That's not okay, and we know that. See, we're different. We're not the same as animals. And it all stems from Genesis 1. We have dominion over animals. We are, and it stems from this. We are made, as humans, in the image of God. That's what gives us value. And the Bible says, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter how strong you are or weak you are or anything else, no matter what your record is, no matter what you've done or not done or might do or might not do, you matter. Every human being made in the image of God matters because they reflect God and therefore they have dignity and they have value and they have worth. People matter. So the question is, without God, on what basis do people matter? On what basis do they have worth? Now, I'm not suggesting non-Christians don't agree with what I just said, that they don't think people matter. Quite clearly they do. My, my question is a deeper one of why? Why? What, what about the, a worldview without God means that actually at a deep level, because everyone does think they matter, but at what level do they matter without God? And actually, this is not just some kind of intellectual whataboutery. This is actually kind of really very, very important because it has big implications for both civil rights and human rights. So where did the idea that every human being has rights come from? Because it's a cherished idea in our culture, regardless of your creed, colour, background, class, whatever, we believe that human beings have rights and you can't trample on the rights of an individual and we agree with that. We think that the strong should not dominate the weak in our society and when they do, we get upset about it. But where did that come from? Now, lots of people might answer kind of, well, Western values, British values, whatever, but what does that mean? 
how did those, how did it develop those ideas and understandings in our culture? How did that develop? Now, before you, to know that, you've got to understand the history of thought and why we think like we do culturally and where it came from. You see, before Christianity emerged in the West, because whilst there's hundreds and hundreds of years of Christianity, there is actually, the West was around before Christianity came. Before Christianity emerged in the West, Western thought was dominated by Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy is fundamentally impersonable. Like individuals within Greek philosophy don't have rights. They don't have freedom. They don't have any choice. Aristotle actually said that some races were born to be slaves. It's just who they are. They're born to be slaves. So where did the idea of human rights come from? Because we don't think that. Some races are just born to be slaves. Now, whether you realize it or not, human rights came from the Bible. They came from the word of God. They came from Christian teaching and Christian thought. Human rights, just think about it for a moment. Human rights and justice make far more sense in a world made by God than a world not made by God. Because if it's true that the strong should not dominate the weak, it must be true for a reason. There must be more than this material world where we're just a collection of genes and, and cells and atoms and everything else. They're, because if this material world is all that there is, then how can we say that life really matters? There must be a transcendent appeal, a standard to which we can all appeal. There must be something to say, for this reason, for the basis of this, this is why life matters. You see, you can't simultaneously hold, you just can't simultaneously hold that everyone can have their own moral standards, what's right for them, and decide what's right for them, and hold to the idea of a robust human rights notion that the strong shouldn't dominate the weak. You can't have both. Because you might say, well, like my moral rights is that the moral standard is that the, the strong can't dominate the weak. And I might say, well, mine is different. Mine is that they can. So I'm going to dominate you, thank you very much. And on what basis is, is your rights better than mine or higher than mine? There must be something above us that we appeal to and say on the basis, not what you think or what you think or what I think, but on the basis of this, we're all going to appeal. You can't have both. And as I said last week, there's a certain irony that Westerners rarely realize that all the things that we enjoy about values of rights and uh, worth and value, they wouldn't have taken root were it not for the West's Christian heritage. But the implications for stripping out God from the idea of rights, they're actually very serious. See, if we don't believe in the image of God, then what are you going to ground human rights in? There's only two answers to that. There's either no such thing as human rights, in which case it's a free-for-all and we do away with morality and anyone can do what they want. And I don't think anybody really believes that. Or we have to say there's something else that sets the standard. And if it's not God, it has to be us. It has to be mankind. And in our culture, we've decided that without God, human rights are grounded in what we call our shared humanity. We're all humans. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a human? What does personhood mean? When does it actually start? What actually determines what a person is and what a person isn't? And to actually answer that, we've based our kind of understanding of notion of human rights in what we might call capacities. Humans have the capacity to reason, the capacity for self-consciousness, the capacity to make moral choices. Now, if you think about that logically, it sounds great, but if you think about that logically, that has serious and huge implications. There's a guy called Peter Singer, who's a philosopher and ethicist, 
And uh, a few years ago, he was arguing for abortion. And he was saying abortion is morally acceptable, morally right, and morally okay. And he made this very point. He said, because life in the womb doesn't have capacities, they can't make choices, they can't reason, they don't know right from wrong, they can't live apart from their mother, it doesn't have rights. But Peter Singer, far from being the darling of secular culture, is actually hated. I was reading an article this week where he is, he is profoundly hated because he takes it to the logical conclusion. And he goes further and he points out the moral implications of no God and rights being based on capacities. And he says born infants don't have those rights either, those capacities either. They can't reason. They can make no preferences yet. They can't make any moral choices. Neither can senile old people. Neither can those with cognitive disabilities or severe intellectual or developmental disabilities. They don't have the same ability to reason or no rights, moral rights, and anything. And he says, therefore, none of them. If, you, if you're going to argue that abortion is all right, then you can't logically protect the rights of any of these people either because their rights are based on cap capacities. Now, I, most people don't agree with him, obviously, but he's just pointing out the logical implication of a worldview. And I don't think that your average secular person, you know what I mean by that, thinks, well, that's okay either. We don't. But the question you've got to ask is, why not? What's your worldview say? How, why have you arrived at that position? Because if you don't believe in the image of God, in what do you ground human rights? Who or what gets to decide what human life is? What's personhood? When does life have worth and who gets to decide? Who's worth protecting and who's not? How do you make those decisions? You see, whatever your worldview, you must be able to answer all of those questions in a logically coherent manner. And having a biblical worldview, I would argue, means that we do. Because we don't get to decide. God does. So, the importance of human rights is massive for all sorts of... In the image of God is important for all sorts of reasons. But it also has massive and profound implications. So there are some big implications of believing in the image of God. The early church came into, the existent, and came into existence in the, in the Greco-Roman world, and it was a world that was also grounded in the idea of human rights um, based on capacities. Again, quote, Aristotle said some races were too emotional. He said they couldn't reason. And because they don't have the capacity for higher reason, they deserve to be slaves. And into that Greco-Roman world, that's where the early church came. And in that Greco-Roman world, you had slavery and you had terrible poverty and you had lots of abortion and you had infanticide as well. It was perfectly legal to kill babies, very often girls. They were often just left out to die. It was exactly the same with the elderly, exactly the same with those who are sick. Just, just let them die. They don't have any value. Let them die. But then Christians come along and they believe in the image of God, that all life has value. And so they're against infanticide. They cared for the poor, they cared for the sick, they cared for the dying, they cared for women, they cared for widows. In, the, in those days, you were a widow, it was like, well, you need to remarry to be looked after. And Christians said, well, you can if you want, but you don't need to be, we will care for you, we will look after you. And because of their belief in the sanctity of life, they were against abortion too. Because if you believe in the image of God, then human life is good, all of it. And there is obviously in our culture an increasingly an argument, of, well, not increasingly, is an argument of my body, my choice. And I have certain sympathy with that argument. However, it doesn't hold biblically either. See, if we were made, then we belong to our creator. We belong to the one who made us. 
And then we know, because we read the story, that our sinful rebellion broke that relationship. We busted it all up. We, we broke the image of God, if you like. But then God entered into our sinful rebellion and he remade us in, the, in Christ once again into the image of God. And now 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us, you, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God and life matters to God. And so for the Christian, life matters. All of it. From beginning to end because we're made in the image of God. But part of the argument about sanctity of life centers around this. Well, what is life? Like, when does it start? What, what is life? And as I said last week, the prevailing story in our culture is that life in the womb is not yet life. If we find a single-cell amoeba on Mars tomorrow, the headlines of the newspapers will all be, life found on Mars for a single cell. Yet multiple cells in the womb, in the UK context, that's not life. That's the prevailing story of our culture. But that's not what God's word says. See, this image of God is important, and the Bible says it begins in our mother's womb. Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now let's be clear. This is poetry. It's not biology. right? And the Psalms are poetry, we, 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 not biology. We, we know how babies are made, and if we don't, that's a conversation you need to have with your parents. This, this is not claiming to be science or biology. When you're pregnant and you go for that 12-week scan, you're not going to see a picture of the Holy Spirit with knitting needles in there. That's not what is going on scientifically here. But the fact that it's poetry, that would be profoundly weird and absurd, wouldn't it? But there's, but there's poetry here that's that is telling us there is a spiritual reality behind the biology. We're not just a clump of cells. This is life. And it's not just generic life. It's intimate. God knows each person. He's involved in each life. There is a unique and sacred personhood in every human life. And it's not generic, it's personal. God knows you God knew you in the womb. You were you. You were life before you took your first breath. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, and he just as well could be speaking to any of us. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. See, life is a sacred gift from God. And if we take the image of God seriously, then termination of life, with the exception of to save the life of a mother, termination of life is a violation of the image of God. But life is precious, not just at the beginning, but also through to the very end. Verse 16 of Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed of me. God has ordained the days. Deuteronomy 32, God asserts his authority and his sovereignty over all of human life. He says, see now, verse 39, that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. 
and there is none that can deliver me out of my hand. Job 14, verse 1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Verse 5, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. See, our prevailing worldview in our culture is that we're in charge, we're in control. We know deep down we're not, but we want to be. That's why we want to determine when life can start and when it stops. We, in a secular culture, increasingly, wanna, I, I want to be in charge. And the biblical worldview and the message of the Bible is we're not in charge and we're not in control. We don't get to decide when it begins and we don't get to start decide when it ends. Now, I just want to be clear and state this again. As, as Christians, we have no right to impose and force our own moral commitments and beliefs on other people. But we do have a duty to contribute to the conversation. You see, when worth is determined by capacity and capability, it's always the most vulnerable and the weakest in society that suffer. It's never the strong that suffer. It's always the weakest, always the most vulnerable. And they're the ones who need the most protection. Now, we don't believe, I said this again, or I say it again, we, we do not believe that worth and value is found in our ability to contribute. It's not found in our ability to do impressive stuff or to look good or sound good or be smart or anything else. It's found only because we are made in the image of God. So if we took the image of God seriously as a people, what would it look like for us as a church? Well, it looks like being pro-life. And I don't mean in a vitriolic political campaign. Whenever it gets into that, it gets heated and it's horrible. And they just shout at each other. Isn't, that's not what I'm talking about. Being pro-life means, in a very practical way, standing up for the rights of the unborn, yes. But it also means standing up for the rights of the weak and the sick and the vulnerable and the disabled and the senile and those with no capacity on the full spectrum of life. But it also looks like more than words. I've said this a few times, our fight is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. What's that look like? It looks like praying. See, there is an enemy who is the prince of darkness, the course of this earth, the air, of the, the prevailing powers and principalities behind all of this stuff. That's a spiritual battle. That's not a fight against people. That's a fight that is one on our knees, that the course of this world would be changed, that the prevailing understanding and life view and narrative of culture would be changed, not because of legislation and, and moral, you must do this. And anybody who thinks it's going to be changed politically in that sense, it, it's not. You can't change the hearts of man through legislation, but through a work of God. It looks like praying. But it also looks like acting, acting like Jesus. The Bible tells us Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not because he had his own sorrow, but because he made our sorrows his very own. Where was Jesus found? At home with the forgotten, with the outcast, with the vulnerable, with the broken. That's who he hung out with and he came to us when we were in that situation. And so we go too. See, at the end of the day, compassionate witness of a caring Christian community is far more compelling than any argument. 
And so we want to devote ourselves and our energies. Yes, we need to speak and yes, we need to pray, but also to actually building and acting as a community of people who love Jesus, know Jesus and follow Jesus and act like him. And that will look like, for some, well, it will look different for each of us, but for some it will look like adopting. For, other, for all of us, it will look like wrapping around those who do adopt and saying, that's not the call of God on my life, but it is on yours, and so we're going to do everything we can to help you in that walk, to wrap around you and care for you and support and recognize that this is going to be a different journey that you've got, and sometimes it'll be difficult, but we're going to wrap around and care and love. It will also look like wrapping around and caring and loving those people who find themselves in the scary position of unexpected pregnancy, of not being on the outside lobbing bricks and stones in and saying, what have you done that for? But like Jesus, being in the midst of the snot and the tears and holding the tent cheek and saying, we'll walk with you. We will wrap around you. We will build a community of care, of grace, of love around you. Yeah, we'll need to deal with some of the other issues of repentance and restoration, but we, will, we are here with you and for you because we love you. For those who get the tragic news that the, the pregnancy is not what they might think it's going to be or hoped of, and they find out that they're going to have a child that is going to be born with additional needs, it looks like wrapping around once again and saying, we are here, we will walk with you however long it takes. It looks like recognizing, actually, in this situation, you're not going to be able to act the same as everybody else acts. That's okay. You're going to be under increasing pressure in different ways and things that we, most of us can't imagine. We're here. We'll walk with you. Your child's going to have some additional needs, and we're not going to be judgmental and go, oh, they can't behave, can they? We're going to wrap around them. But it's also going to look exactly the same for people caring for people at the other end of life. Those who are vulnerable, right at the end of care, it's going to look like saying, we're not just going to shove you to one side. You matter because you are you. You matter to the last moment of your life, and we will do all we can, not only to help you die well, but also live well until death. And it looks like wrapping around the same people who are caring for elderly and senile relatives and going, we just understand that you can't live your life in the same way as everybody else. You're not going to be as available to come to every meeting and be participating in every way, and that's okay. We're going to wrap around you and help you and support you because you're doing the right thing and caring for them. It basically looks like loving people, all people, everywhere, until the end. That's what being the people of God, the family of God, the church should look like. As I said, we are recovering hypocrites. We often get it wrong. We will no doubt as we go forward, but that's increasingly what we want to be and model, a Jesus people. Which means finally, last thing I want to say, it ends with a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And understanding that in the gospel there's the restoration now of the image of God. We were made in the image of God. We broke the image of God by our sin and rebellion, but Jesus has remade it. And so we are going to preach and proclaim the gospel of grace, the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of radical, staggering kindness of God in Christ Jesus. It means to those women who have had abortions and to the men who have played their part, we don't curse those who are made in the likeness of God. We proclaim the gospel of grace. We proclaim the gospel of forgiveness. We proclaim the renewal of all things, which is also the renewal of your life too. It's not the end of the story. Let's just be clear. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus doesn't excuse or minimize our guilt. God doesn't do that. The gospel is that Jesus on the cross suffered the full penalty for it in our place and he put it away forever.
guilt gone, shame gone, dealt with. And as he was resurrected to release the, new power, the power of new life into people and the power of new life into situations that were under the curse of death, so we also proclaim that too. God is able, God is willing, God is here to forgive and restore. That's the gospel. Repentance always leads to forgiveness, which always leads to restoration, which leads to new life, new joy. We're not condemned. We are not treated as our sins deserve, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. He is able to make us clean. He is able to make us new. And he can take the pain of shattered life and he can reweave it into something beautiful for his glory and our good. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Has no one condemned you? Asked Jesus lovingly. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your extravagant, radical, beautiful, outrageous love and grace. Thank you you don't treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you you've added us into family. Thank you that you're walking with us as we walk this journey to become increasingly like you.